Thank you for joining us once again as we continue our series in the book of Psalms. We are going chapter by chapter, verse by verse, expository teaching of the Word of God. We believe wholeheartedly that we put our finger in the Word and say, look, and that's where we learn, that's where we grow, that's where we develop that fullness of the heart after God. Thrilled to have you with us today. We're going to be in Psalm chapter 25 today. The title of our series is How to Overcome Shame, an issue that every one of us deal with in some form or fashion, but it's an issue that God is going to put his finger to today and say, we're going to deal with this. We're going to rid your heart of it. We're going to see you become an, become an overcomer with the joy of the Lord. I want to pray first, and then we're going to read Psalm chapter 25, and we'll get right into the Word. Father, I thank you for the calling on my life to teach the Word and Father, since you've called me, then I, I just completely trust you that you will speak. And you will let people listening to this, wherever they are, they'll, as they listen to the word of God, where there's power, sharp, two-edged sword, that their life can be transformed. And particularly in this issue of shame and guilt and, and trepidation and heart over uh, the angst of the troubles that we face and the uh, accusations of Satan against us, we pray that this word would be a word of deliverance for many who are bound up in shame and suffering that ailment, we give you thanks, God, that you defeated shame on the cross. And we're going to see that today. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn me in your scriptures if you have that available in front of you. <clears throat> Psalm chapter 25. I want to encourage you to not fast forward, to not neglect the actual reading of the word. Probably the most important thing that will be said today is actually listening to God's word, and then we will comment on it. Psalm chapter 25, of David, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be put to shame who are wantonly, to, wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore instruct sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right, and he, teach the humble, he teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man that fears the Lord? Him he will instruct in the way that he should go. His soul shall abide in well-being. His offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. His eyes are ever towards the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. My troubles of heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my troubles and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in, in you." May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you, God. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles, out of all his troubles. I want to talk, first of all, about the problem that King David was facing. And it's a problem that many of us will relate to very clearly. It's found in verse 16 through 20. And first of all, we're talking about the problem that's causing this shame to take place. He says, turn to me and be gracious, for I am lonely and afflicted. So he's beginning to describe the troubles that he's facing here. And many of these things we're about to read once again, after, even after having just read it, are things that many of us are facing. We're, we're dealing with loneliness. We're dealing with the affliction. Loneliness is a, a heart issue, a, a sense of being abandoned. And this can be shame-producing. The other thing here is the word afflicted. This speaks more to the body, to something being wrong inside of our body, the, the affliction of of, of getting old, the, the affliction of being sick, the affliction of having some deformity, the affliction of having some kind of disease, the affliction of being bedridden. These things can produce shame if we're not careful in our life. Verse 17, the troubles of my heart are enlarged. Man, 
It's not just that he has some affliction. It's not just that he, he's, he's a bit lonely, but he's seeing these things become more and more enlarged in his heart. I've seen this in my life so many times where I've prayed for certain things, and, and not only did they not get resolved or answered right away, but the situation became worse. That's what King David is facing here, and maybe that's what you're facing in your life. The troubles of our heart are being enlarged. Bring me, here's the cry, bring me out of my distresses. And it's in plural here, the distresses. It's not one distress. And, it's not, and, and so you have multiple distresses and each one of them being enlarged. My goodness, what, 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 what troubles this person must be facing? Verse 18, consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. His problem here is not just loneliness or afflictions or distress or each of these troubles being enlarged and the shame that it's producing but that he's struggling with sin. Oftentimes when shame rises in our heart, we look for some remedy to that shame. We look for some antidote to it in things that are worldly. We, we want to drink it away. We want to entertain it away. We want to uh, sit and binge watch TV just to, so that we don't feel that shame of the troubles that are being enlarged and the distresses and the afflictions. And, and therefore it can drive us if we're not careful. If we don't bring shame to the proper place, which we're going to be talking about here today, then it's going to be brought to the, a wrong place and it will produce uh, the, the affliction of sin. And so, so David's crying out, forgive all my sins, consider how many are my foes. So, it's, so we see here two different things, an internal struggle with sin and emotional distress and all these things being increased. But we also, not, we see an external problem too, is, is, is how many foes, not just one foe, how many foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. These are conditions of a, of a broken world. These are conditions of the, the fallen nature that we live in today. These are the things that the New Testament calls the, the groaning that the earth has, that the sons of, of man are, are groaning for the things to be changed, a, a difference to take place. This is the groaning over the brokenheartedness. This is the groaning that my wife and I faced when we had a stillborn child and we held that that, that infant in our arms and, and it was lifeless and just the groaning of our heart, just we so long for the life of that precious one. This is the, this is the troubles that are enlarged in our hearts. We, we live in a world that is afflicted with troubles, with trials, with tribulations, with distresses, with afflictions, with, with the trouble of sin that overwhelms us. We, 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 we live in a world where, where, where kids are shooting each other at parties. We live in a world where where in America over 60 million babies have been aborted. We live in a world where there are earthquakes that destroy homes and people are crushed under it. We live in a world where, where famine takes the life of precious children. We live in a world that is just seemingly at, at, at the fringes of falling apart. And, and these troubles in our heart, whether they be the external ones that I'm talking about here right now or the internal ones of a heart. I'm lonely because I don't have any friends. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm sad because I'm ridiculed and mocked. I, I, I don't fit in with the crowd. I, I, I'm not making an impression on the world. I'm not, not living up to my the expectations. I'm disappointed and distressed. I, I get ridiculed at school. There's all kinds of things that can bring shame in our life. I want to say today to you that there are two types of shame. There is a beneficial shame and there is a detrimental shame. The beneficial shame is the shame that we would call in Scripture guilt, guilt over sin, being, uh, being in the wrong, being misguided, being misled, uh, hurting and harming somebody, being disobedient to the Word of God. These things bring a righteous guilt into our heart. It's right for God to allow us to be guilty over sin so that we would know that sensation in our heart of guilt turns us, therefore, to the Lord. It's, it's the, the guilt over sin. Now, the secular mindset today, in, in almost any book you would pick up in a, in a bookstore or in the library, or if you research shame online, you're going to get a very different worldview than the scripture. The worldview of the secular mindset is that shame is, is always toxic, even the shame over sin, that, that sin is, is a man-made construct to cause us to toe the line of religious zealots, uh, but if we take away the law, we take away the rule, we take away God, we take away order and structure, then our hearts will be free. We'll be not only shameless, but we'll be free to live the life that we want. 
This leads to a slippery slope to, uh, downward to a spiraling life of despair, discouragement, selfishness, narcissism, and in the end, a result of it all is an eternity without God. We need this beneficial guilt in our life. Don't be afraid of it. Embrace it and say, Lord, just like David did here, three different times he speaks about his sin and his guilt in this one chapter. But there's a different kind of, of, of guilt, or excuse me, a different kind of shame, and, it, and it's the detrimental shame. There's the beneficial and there's the detrimental. The detrimental shame is, 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 is found in different ways. Number one, it could be in a, in a, uh, a shortcoming. Uh, you get up in class to give a speech when you're in high school or college and you're afraid of public speaking and you, and you freeze up and, you, and you, you get lost in your notes and things fall down and, you, and, and you just, you're, you're almost in tears and the class is laughing. Uh, this is causing shame. A sense of, I'm a failure, I'm, I'm no good, I, I'll never amount to anything. This is the shame, the detrimental shame of shortcoming. The other one is the, the detrimental shame of impropriety. This is when you've done things that were wrong in, in a, a social situation. It could be, let's use an illustration of uh, two couples that get together for dinner. And the one couple is, is, uh, is, is talking to the other and they, they start laughing and they, they look at the couple and make this little lighthearted joke about, my goodness, like, why haven't you guys had a divorce? You'll be married 10 years now. Uh, little, little unbeknownst to them is the fact that that couple is struggling and, and the wife starts crying and, and, and you say, what's wrong? And says, well, we actually are considering divorce. Oh, my goodness. Now, there's that, there's that uh, the sense of impropriety that, uh, that I, I, I say stupid things. I, I, I do stupid things. I dress the wrong way. I'm, I go to a party and I'm, I wear the wrong kind of clothes. And that's, this is, the, this is the, uh, the detrimental type of shame as well. And, uh, the third one would be being compared to others. A lot of parents compare one sibling to another. Oh, why don't you be like so-and-so? Why don't you be like your brother? Why don't you be like your sister? Or the comparison of other people in, in the, our field of labor. Oh, look at that pastor. Look at that preacher. Look at that business leader. Look at, look at that teacher. She won the teacher of the year. And there's this detrimental shame of being compared. It can be someone else comparing you to someone, or can you even be fill your own heart with shame by you comparing yourself to other People. There's the shame of being falsely scolded, being accused of something, not only accused, but being blamed and brought to a sense of already convicted of this. Uh, I know you stole that piece of pie, uh, and you didn't. And there's that shame of, 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 you know, why would somebody call these things to attention when they didn't really happen? And the, the last one of, uh, there's many more, but the last one I'll talk about today is is the detrimental shame of being bullied. It's being taunted, verbal abuse, uh, leaving you feeling weak or helpless, or uh, as this scripture says here in verse 16, lonely and afflicted, a heart enlarged, uh, troubles enlarged, of heart enlarged, the stresses, the affliction, the, the, the foes that, that hate me. These are, these, are, these are being bullied, being taunted, being, being someone aggressively coming against you, and it leaves you feeling small and ashamed. Now, now, the question here is, what are we to do with the shame? Where, uh, how, how, the, the question of David is, is asking is, is, is Lord, how, how, how can you let these things happen? How, how can, and, and, and he talks here about the, the cry of his heart, verse 20. We'll get to this a little bit later, but, Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame. What would put him to shame? Is the shame that he's dealing with here the accus false accusations? Is it the impropriety? Is it... Is it, is it something that he, he feels uh, belittled? Is it him comparing himself to other? Really, with the shame, I think, that David is talking about, and here's the key of what I want to, one of the keys of what I want to say today is guard my heart and soul, what, from that I may not be put to shame, either be put to shame by others or put myself to shame. Now, what could leave us in shame? It would be if verse 20 doesn't become a reality. The prayer that he's crying here is, oh God, deliver my soul. Let me not be put to shame. The, the, the ultimate shame would be is if God doesn't come through for you. The ultimate shame that he's crying out against would be, God, I can only overcome shame. And, and, and the sense of lowliness in my own heart is if you come through for me, you guard my soul and you deliver me. 
And so that's the birth of his prayer. And that's where this chapter actually starts. He doesn't start with the problem, even though in my teaching today, I started with the problem just so that we can set the context of what he's dealing with. But really, he starts this psalm off with a prayer, a cry of his soul. So the first one is the problem. Part two is the prayer. And this is found in verses one through seven. This is the prayer of David. And David was a great prayer. Prayer. Man, if anybody could intercede, it was David. He had the cry of his soul, the longing of his heart, plus the honesty of being open and vulnerable before the Lord, holding nothing back. He knew the Lord knew his heart, so he would express it all to the Lord. What a great way to pray. Verse one of, of David, to you, O Lord, to you I lift up my soul. The writer is overwhelmed in, on many fronts. He knows, but he knows what to do when he's in trouble. He, he knows the troubles are enlarging, but if he gets stuck in the shame of that, he's stuck. But he knows what to do. And that's my encouragement in this message for you today is that you would know what to do when your heart is overwhelmed with troubles, when you find yourself in all kinds of distresses, when you have many foes against you, when sin seems to be bombarding you and you can't seem to escape. Know what to do. Do what David did here. The writer is overwhelmed on many fronts, but he knows what to do when his troubles are enlarged. He knows to cry out to the Lord, to you, O Lord. I lift up my soul. Four times in here, he's asking the Lord, let this thing happen. Let not my heart be broken. Let not the trouble. And, and, and what is he doing? He's asking God to take his soul. He says here in, in, in the end of verse one, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. This is a phrase taken from the, uh, the Old Testament practice of the sacrificing for sin. They would take a lamb and, and when they sacrificed that body of the lamb and they poured out the blood, they would lift the lamb up to the Lord saying, this sacrifice is yours. This, this offering is yours. David takes it one step further and says, it's not just bulls and goats, lambs or, or sheep. It's, 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 it's my soul. I, I want to lift up my soul to you, God. I, I want you to take my, my whole soul for you. The, 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 this is Strong's concordance um, defines um, the, the word soul here as your person, self, life, desire, passion, appetites, and or emotions. All of these are part of our soul. And you see what the cry here is? I'm in distress and my troubles are enlarged. Shame is overwhelming my heart. I can't seem to escape it. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to lift it all up to you. All my thoughts, all my emotions, all my desires, my desire for escape, my emotions of being ashamed, my 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 myself, my life, all my desires, all my passions, all my appetites. I'm, I'm lifting up to you, God. I'm going to I'm going to put them in your hands, God. I'm going to turn it over to you. This is what I do oftentimes when I'm facing multitudes of troubles and I don't know what to do. I I, I picture myself like Moses' parents when when Pharaoh was about to take the lives of all the young children, uh, the, the the boys in in uh, the Hebrew children in Egypt, and 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 Moses' mother takes. Mother takes Moses and puts him in a basket and, and just lets him, lets him go down the river. It's, this is what David's doing. He's, he's just saying, I'm going to let this go. I'm going to trust you with my problems. I'm going to trust you with my shame. I'm going to trust you with my hurts. I'm going to trust you with my loneliness. I'm going to trust you with my brokenness. Just putting it all into the Lord's hands. And we see, we know the end of the story with Moses, how God led him to the right place so that he could end up being that deliverer. See, God can even use the troubles of your soul. He can use the enlargements of your problems uh, for his own good. What the enemy intended for evil, God turns into good. And the, the start of that for us in that turning it into good is lifting it up to the Lord, trusting that, that he will take care of you. He will take care of your personhood, of yourself, of your life, of your desires, of your passions, of your appetites, and all of your emotions. They can be trusted to be given over to the Lord. He said, I, in verse two, he says, I trust in you. Let me not be put to shame. He knows the antidote to shame is trust. The antidote to shame is, and even as good as counseling is, that's not the antidote to shame. Counseling can help you get to the place of trust, good biblical counseling. But, but the counseling alone is not sufficient. It has to come to this, the word of God filling your heart where you trust his goodness, you trust his power, you trust his presence. And as you trust him, you've lifted up your soul to him and you say, I will put my trust in you. This is found there in verse two. Oh my God, I put my trust in you. It's also found in verse 20. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me put to shame for I take refuge in you. There, there, there's, there's this cry of guard my soul, deliver me. 
Lord, I, I'm trusting you with this. I'm trusting you with my soul. You, you are the one who I can, can call on to, to allow me to escape the, the, the great shame that I find myself in. And he continues on. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. That's verse 3. Look at that. None who wait for you shall be put to shame. Here's, here's another anecdote. Uh, one is, is, is trust, and another one here is waiting on the Lord. None who wait for you shall be put to shame. So we, we lift up our crisis to the Lord. We trust him with it and the outcome for it. And, and then we just wait on the Lord. Now, this is probably the hardest part of overcoming a life of shame or, or of, of these things that we read, of these problems that David was facing, his loneliness and afflictions, and his increase of troubles in his life. The, the, the hardest part is once you've lifted it up and, and once you've trusted him and said, it's yours now, Lord, it's not mine. The basket's been sent down the river. Now, the next part is the most difficult. Now I wait on you because some deliverance is not instantaneous. Some overcoming doesn't happen in the instant of the snapping of a finger in the twinkling of an eye. It, it is... It, it, it is a process. It is God moving and working and de de developing the deliverance for you at the right time, in the right place, in the right way. But David knows that, that the calling of an intercessor when he wants to pour his heart out to the Lord is going to require a waiting uh, upon the Lord. The Hebrew here literally is all of the ones who wait will, will, will not be put to shame. All of the ones who wait. And I like this because it doesn't say, um, some, some of you are going to wait on the Lord and it's still not going to work. So you can trust the Lord. You can lift your soul up to him. Why? Because it says all of the ones who wait, every single one of them, and every single one of the ones who wait shall not be put to shame. God is going to deal a death blow to your shame. God's going to break through that loneliness. God is going to break through that affliction. God's going to break through those distresses. The troubles of your heart that are enlarged are going to be minimized, and you're going to find victory after victory in your life. The prayer continues. Now he gets specific, these requests. Now I'm trusting you. I'm waiting on you. But, but now, now, now here's what I need from you, Lord. While I'm waiting, I need these things. And, and, and we, we find him now in verse 4 saying, Make, I have that circled in my Bible, make. This is something you do. Make this happen. This is, I, I can't make this happen. Make me know your ways, O Lord. Wow. What, what a such a powerful word when it comes to wanting to overcome our shame and the, the, the troubles that we find in our life. Make me know your ways, Lord. Could you imagine if Joseph would have known the Lord's ways when he was thrown into that pit or into prison? how much less despair and shame he would be under if he'd have just known, just wait, just trust the Lord, something good is coming from this. If we know the outcome, it helps us through the process as we wait on the Lord. So he's, he's saying, God, you got to make that happen to know your ways. What a blessing it is to be in New Testament times after the cross of Jesus Christ and knowing the resurrected Christ who sits at the right hand of God is our way. Jesus said of himself, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. In a sense, David could be crying out, make me know Christ. Make, make me know the way. He is the way. It, it, it's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you're the fullness of my way. It, it's not just knowing a route to take or the journey or the words to say or how to process difficulties that we're in, but it's knowing him. Make me know him. If I can know him, then what worries do I have? With What troubles do I have if I know him? This is the core of what we're trying to get across today. Make me. The second thing he says is, teach me. Teach me your paths. It's plural. There's different paths. There's, there's paths that the Lord has for us, and, and, and there are various, and we need to, the discernment to know his ways. Which are the ways? Which are his paths? But this is something we are taught by the Lord. So he's saying, Lord, it's up to you. You teach me. And then number three, he says, lead me. Lead, lead me in your truth. Lead me to understand uh, how to deal with when my troubles are, are increasing and enlarged. Uh, lead me in, in a different way. The Hebrew word here for lead is much stronger than the idea of just uh, someone who's a good leader or someone who points the way. That the word here, it means to tread or to march. You see this? It's, he's saying, come on, march out, Lord, like, like an army in victory. Let's, let us march together. Lead me in your truth. Lead me to the overwhelming truth of what it is to live a victorious life, a life not being beaten up by shame, but a life that understands 
the power of the cross and the victory that we have in Christ Jesus, that we can tread over our enemies, that we can march through any problem that we have to onward towards victory. What is he primarily praying about? Well, that's the topic of our talk today, shame. He mentions it in verse 2, uh, let me not be put to shame. In verse 3, he says, those who wait for you will not be put to shame. In verse 3, he continues on, but they will be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. In verse uh, 20, he says, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame. You see here that, that, that at first he's crying out, to, here, here I am, I'm lifting up my soul. But once he trusts the Lord, and as he's waiting on the Lord, now he's saying, now guard my soul. Guard my soul from shame returning to me. Or, or, or guard me as I'm waiting for the deliverance from these problems that are causing shame. Guard my heart that I not put more emphasis on shame than I do on the victory of that what you've already won for me, that you're going to teach me, that you're going to make me, that you're going to lead me, you're going to march me, you're going to cause me to tread over these things in my life. Let me not be put to shame for in you I take refuge. In other words, I'm, 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 in, a, I'm in a fortress I'm protected. I have walls surrounding me. I have, a, I have an army surrounding me. And I can, I can know that you're giving me the victory. Now, the emphasis here, even though shame is mentioned four times, the, the emphasis here is not on shame. And even though we read verses 16 through 19 of the various problems that he was facing, the multitudes of problems and how they were increasing, and interestingly enough, this whole chapter does not put its emphasis on the problems, but it puts its emphasis on God's glorious attributes. It, it speaks of who God is, and we find this in verse 6 and 7. Remember your mercy, O Lord. See, he's beginning to call on who God is. He's not just saying, help me, I'm in trouble, I'm trusting, I'm waiting. But now he's, he's asking God, Lord, you have these attributes. Oh, if you want to do something that will build up your soul, study the attributes of God, his love, his kindness, his mercy, his tenderness, his justice, his long-suffering, his patience, his goodness, his holiness, his everlasting love. Study these things. And you will find those that become to you a firm foundation. And that firm foundation, when the enemy comes in like a flood, the Lord will raise up a standard against them. That standard will be the word of God and the God of the word, the God who is, is these things that we're talking about in his attributes. Remember, and one of the attributes is mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love. So while he's suffering these things of shame, while he's waiting on the Lord, he's asking the Lord to show him his attributes to remind him of who God is. And this is so powerful because it takes your eyes off your problems and puts them on the solution, puts them on the Lord. The Lord. It takes them off the earthly things and puts them onto heavenly things. Remember your mercy and your steadfast love for they have been from old. In other words, these are attributes, eternal, infinite attributes of God. They have always been. They were never started and they will never stop. It's a sure thing. God is unchanging. And so his mercies will never change. His steadfast love for you and I will never change. And we can ask him to remember that now in my circumstance and my situation. Now, he goes on to verse 7 says, okay, I want you to remember mercy. But, and I love this transition that he does here. But, but don't remember my sins, please. And, and he's now asking God specifically about mercy, my sins and my youth or my transgression. Again, now it goes back again. According to your steadfast love, remember me. For the sake of your goodness, O Lord. It's like a sandwich here. He says, you're good and you're merciful and you're steadfast love, but I have sinned and I'm in trouble, but I can count on your steadfast love. Always remember that. And, and it's almost cyclical. I, I remember your love and your steadfast, but I, 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 fell, I failed here and I struggled here. Oh, but you're still loving me. You're still merciful. Oh, but I failed. And, and it just continues. It's an unceasing love that God has for you, an unceasing forgiveness that God gives to you, an unceasing grace that is placed upon his children. And you can have that in your life and you can have that today. Prayer is the shifting of his heart. His, his eyes are moving off verse 16 through 19 troubles, and, and, and his eyes are even actually moving off of his prayer, of, uh, of his cry. I'm troubled over these things, God. I'm crying out to you. His eyes are being moved off that, and they are beginning to be fixed on his hope, his solution. His, his eyes are getting off his troubles being enlarged, and his eyes are getting on him. We see this so clear in these prayers of David here. Can I, can I invite you to go back to, to these first few verses one more time and, and look at how many times, verse one, to you, I have that underlined in my Bible, to you, O Lord, I trust. In verse three, 
I will wait on you. Whoever waits on you shall not be put to shame. Uh, verse four, help me know your ways. Verse four, to know your past. Verse five, to know your truth. Verse five, to know you are the God of my salvation. Verse five, for you I wait all day long. Verse six, for your mercy, O Lord. Verse six, your steadfast love. Verse seven, your steadfast love. Verse seven, for your goodness, good and upright is the Lord. When, when you start turning your eyes to say your, your past, your truth, your life, your love, your grace, your mercy, your eyes are getting fixed on Jesus. And that becomes the solution. That becomes the true antidote. Yes, trusting and waiting and longing for the Lord. All these things can be the, the turning point, but ultimately comes down to this. I'll fix my eyes on Jesus. I'll put all my hope in him. And I will look to your goodness, to your stead, not mine. It's 11 times he uses the word your or you here. Uh, and that's so good for us to understand that, that, that our help comes from the Lord. Where does our help come from? It comes from the Lord. It doesn't come from ourselves. It doesn't come from armies. It doesn't come from wisdom. It doesn't come from strength. It doesn't come from cleverness. It doesn't come from, from good counseling, although those things can help. Where do they come from? They come from the mountains of the Lord. They come from that holy hill. They come from God himself. The third thing we want to talk about is the path. We've seen the problem. We've seen the prayer. And now David begins to concentrate on the path that he's going to take to win this victory over shame in his life. In the midst of troubles, enlarged, he prays to, for God to lead him out. And what he sees here is in verse 8 through 12. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore instructs sinners in the way. So, so David has a confidence now that, that, he's, that the Lord is going to instruct him in the way he should go. He's confessed his sin. And, and then he speaks about he leads the humble in what is right, and he teaches the humble his way. Uh, I'm coming to the Lord. I, I can't solve these problems in my own strength, so I'm trusting in you, God, and I'm believing you will do what is right, and you will teach me his way. In verse 10, and all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and mercy. Again, he's, he's clinging to the attributes of God, that he knows of God's steadfast love and his faithfulness for, the, uh, for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. He, he instructs sinners. He leads humble people. He teaches us his way. And all the paths of the Lord, the paths that he's going to lead us on, the way he's going to lead us on, are steadfast love and faithfulness. In other words, if, if you humble yourself before the Lord, you're going to find instructions. You're going to find leadership, teaching, and paths that are full of these things, steadfast love and faithfulness. Oh, now you're now you're flowing in a river of steadfast love and faithfulness rather than a, a river of despair and discouragement over being lonely and, and, and shamed. You're, you're now finding a whole new journey, a whole new path in life, being flooded with the goodness of God in your life. Interestingly enough, verses 8, uh, let, me, let me continue. Verse 11 says, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Uh, verse 12, Who is the man that fears the Lord? Him he will trust. He will instruct in the way that he should go. You're seeing this path now, this beautiful, glorious path that we should take. Now, listen to this. Similar to verses 1 through 7 are found in 8 through 12. There, there, there's, a, there's a similarity between the two. But now, rather than pleading or crying, he is confessing his faith. He is seeing the results of his trust and his waiting, that his soul is being lifted out. He's saying almost the same things, talking about the, the trouble and the shame but now he's positioning himself to speak and confess faith. God, I'm trusting in you. I'm believing you're going to show me. You're, going to, you're, going to, you're, you're good and upright. You're going to lead. You're going to teach me your paths. You're going to pardon me for your, for, for your namesake because your, your attributes, the namesake is who he is. And you're going to lead me out of guilt and out of shame uh, because it's great. The, the guilt and the shame, it's great in my heart. And so it's going to take you to lead me out. It's beautiful that prayer changes our heart. It, it, it not only moves the heart of God, but it changes our heart. It, it, it's no longer a, uh, maybe, a, I don't want to use the word doubt, but a, it's, it's no longer a confusion. Lord, are you going to ever set me free? Or how long, oh Lord, how long? Now it's a, I believe. You're going to remember, and it's going to be done. In Jesus' name, we believe this with all, our whole heart. Lastly, we come to the Third one is the, uh, is the presence, or the fourth one, the presence of the Lord. We see the problem, we see the prayer, we, 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 we see the path, and we see now the presence, the presence of the Lord. How beautiful is this? 
what I'm about to tell you uh, should should stir your soul. It should cause you to be overwhelmed with thanksgiving that 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 the Lord doesn't just give us paths and solutions and problem-solving keys. He gives us himself. He gives us his face. He gives us his glory. He gives us knowledge of who he is. It's not just his hand working in our life, but it's his heart beating on our behalf. He loves us so much. This is found in verse 12. Who is the man? Oh, I love that. I could just put a period after who is the man, even though the whole sentence is who is the man who fears the Lord, but just putting that period, who, who's the man, who's the woman who's gonna walk in the presence of the Lord and find this kind of victory over shame and guilt and condemnation and the, and the devil's works and the enemies and the foes that come against us? Who's gonna find the, 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 this? It's the, it's the man. And then it begins to describe this man. It begins to describe this person, this woman. And it starts by saying, it's the one who fears the Lord. He doesn't fear his problems. He doesn't fear the devil. He doesn't fear his foes. And he doesn't fear shame. He is fearless in the eyes of things because he has a greater fear, an honor, a respect, a dignity of the things of the Lord. He puts the Lord high above all else. He's the man who fears the Lord. And as a result, verse 12 says, he will be instructed in the way that he should choose. And, and so he knows which way to go now. He knows how to navigate through all these enlarged problems in his life. He can choose the best way. And not only that, his soul. Remember what we said about the soul. It was, this, is, this is so important, the things of, of the soul, the soul being the desires and the appetites and the passions and the life, uh, the, these things that we are lifting up to the Lord. He says, as we lift these things up to the Lord, the, who is the man? who lifts his heart up to the Lord? Who's the man who fears the Lord? Verse 13 tells us, his soul shall abide in well-being. All these things that the soul contains, desires, will be, there'll be a well-being, a, a, a wellness over your desires, a wellness over your ambition, a wellness over your dreams, a wellness over your aspirations, a wellness over your attitudes, a wellness over your emotions, a wellness over your spirit. God is going to put those things in you as your soul is lifted up to the Lord, his soul shall abide in well-being. It's not just as temporary, uh, I'll make you feel a little better, but as your soul stays in the presence of the Lord, your soul will abide in the well-being of the Lord. And not only that, it has an effect on our families. The well-being of a mother or a father, a grandmother or a grandfather, a husband or a wife, the soul that's abiding in well-being, and not the result of that will be the in verse 13, and look at this, and his offspring shall inherit the land. In other words, there's going to be increase. It's the opposite of this, the enlargement of troubles around it. Now there's an increase of an inheritance. You, your spouse, and now your children, and your children's children, and your children's children's children are going to see an inheritance, an increase. Uh, a well-being in all of them. You see, if the mother or the father are living in shame and guilt and condemnation and being overwhelmed by, by loneliness and afflictions and troubles of heart and distresses and sin, if, if they're living in that, there's not going to be well-being in the soul. And until there's that turning to the Lord, to lifting up of our soul to the Lord and fixing our eyes on the Lord, until that's happening, we won't have well-being. It's going to affect our children. It's going to affect our marriage. It's going to affect where we are on our jobs. And so there has to be this turning to the Lord and our soul abiding in Him. And then, then the results of that is there's a well-being in our children. Our children are well-adjusted. Our children are, feel safe. They feel loved. They feel protected. They feel the peace of the Lord. They, they feel content. They feel joy because of what's coming down to them through the hands of their mother and father who are abiding in the Lord. Verse 14, it says, and the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. So who is the man? He's the man who's a friend of the Lord, a friend of the Lord. Another translation of that speaks about the secrets, secret counsel, the secret counsel of the Lord. It's like the intimate friendship of knowing things that nobody else knows about that other person. It's, it's a intimacy that is speaking of here, a closeness of the Lord. And to, to that person, he makes them know his covenant. What is his covenant? We don't have time to go into all this, but his covenant is that the father and son agreed together that they would bring you in as many sons would come into glory, that they would bring you as many sons to come to, to, to Jesus, his finished work on the cross. And that was the covenant. The old covenant was by works, by law. Can you live up to the standard to be blessed? The New Testament covenant is Jesus did it for you. He won the victory for you. And all we have to do is be the man, be the woman who trusts in him. And that's the man who's going to be a friend to the Lord. That's the man who's going to have his children blessed. That's the man or woman who's going to do this. He's going to 
have his covenant, God's covenant made known to them. Oh, and when the covenant is made known to you, it brings such peace to you because you're secure now. You know that the covenant is not between you and God alone where you're trying to keep covenant with God and you're failing and you're struggling. No, the covenant is between the Father and the Son and they're keeping covenant. You're joined in that covenant now in covenant with you, but you're protected by their work on your behalf. This is glorious. And then he says here in verse 15, mine eyes are ever towards the Lord for he will... Pluck my feet out of the net. This is what we're talking about today. Our eyes are not downward on the net. Our eyes are upward on the Lord. Our eyes are not on our feet being caught and trapped in all these things that we're talking about today and the shame and the despair. Our, 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 our eyes aren't downward on all our problems. Our eyes are ever towards the Lord, ever, ever. I'm always looking to him. I'm always turning my eyes up. It's easy to look down. It's easy to look at shame. It's easy to look at guilt. It's easy to look at the problems of life. And God is inviting us here as friends, as the ones who have a covenant made known. Now turn your eyes up. Now, come on, fix your eyes on these things now because it's different. You don't have to be stuck in those things. You don't have to be tethered to these things. You can break free from those things right now in the name of Jesus. You can find yourself lifted up and your eyes ever towards the Lord. And verse 20 and 21 continue this this, this, this presence of the Lord, that integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Verse 22, redeem Israel, O God, out of all of his troubles. He wants to break free from all of his troubles. He doesn't want to be stuck in any single one of these troubles. Shame and overcoming it. Let me close in the last few minutes I have with you, turning to the New Testament, because Jesus dealt with our shame. It's not just principles. It's not just truths. It's the man Christ Jesus in his glory, in his power, and through his blood that has redeemed us from condemnation and shame. Whatever form of shame, the shame of being compared, the, 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 the shame of failing, the shame of not being enough, all of these things can have power if we're looking down. But if we look up to what Jesus has done for us, you're going to see a new victory in your life. Look at Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. It says they're looking to Jesus. This is what we're saying here. It's, it's this lifting up of the soul. And it's looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Sometimes we ask, do I have enough faith to overcome shame? Do I have enough uh, uh, faith to overcome all my trials and tribulations and problems? Well, it says here that Jesus is the founder of your faith. In other words, you didn't go out and found faith, and now it's, that faith is going to cause you to have victory. No, that faith that causes you to have victory was a gift that Jesus gave to you. Uh, uh, Ephesians 2.8 talks about this, for by grace you have been saved through faith, period, and not uh, of your own doing, but of the Lord. Uh, these, these three things, the, the, the grace being saved and the faith are not of your own. They are a gift from the Lord to you. He founded it, and not only did he find it, but he said he's going to be the perfecter of our faith. That faith that causes our eyes to always look upward is going to be guided and led and made to happen. The, the triumphal entry is going into this kind of life of faith is perfected by looking unto Jesus because he is the author of our faith who for the joy set before him, endure the cross, despising the shame. So we're looking unto Jesus who. So it'd be, it'd be like saying, uh, look at Gary who is preaching today. So, so it's, it's defining what we are looking at. You're not looking at Gary playing sports or looking at Gary playing with his grandchildren. You're looking at Gary who is preaching today. And so this is giving us specific about what we are looking at at Jesus. We're looking at Jesus who founded and perfected our faith, who for the joy. So there's, he did something for ultimately for joy. There was a joy set before him. Now, now in verse 1, it ends there, the last sentence of, uh, let us run the race with endurance. And we oftentimes think of that running that race means uh, live a godly life or be, be, do well or strive for perfection or um, you know, maybe maybe you can be great at your ministry or or your career or in parenting. That run that race of of the things that 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 passion, that desire, that ambition that you have. But but look at this. It says, "Run the race that is set before him." And it's the exact phrase used in verse two for the joy that was set before him. And so the race that we're running for is a race for joy. And, and, and it only comes through the same thing that came through Jesus, through enduring the cross. We take up our cross with Christ, who did that for 
joy. There was a joy. Where, what was that joy? Hebrews 2 tells us it was the joy of bringing many sons to glory. It was the joy of knowing that his death defeated death, that it broke the fear. Hebrews 2 says it, it breaks the fear of death, that we have slavery to death. We have slavery to condemnation. We have slavery to guilt. We have slavery to shame. But now it's being broken and Jesus broke this. He endured the cross because there was a joy that he knew the cross would win. He, he knew that, there, that, that many sons would be brought to glory. And that brought him such joy. The, the enduring of the cross then became still difficult, still re- gut-wrenching, still horrendous, still a horrible death. But nonetheless, the joy was greater than that. There, there, there was something that superseded the difficulties And see, if we fix our eyes only on the difficulties, we won't endure and we won't find the joy. But it's when we look up to the joy that's set before us, we can find the victory. And and he endured the cross. Listen to this now. And this is the last thing I want to say to you in the next few minutes. Despising the shame. Despising the shame. And and he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He despised the shame. The dictionary of definition of shame is being reluctant to do something through fear of embarrassment or humiliation. And so shame shuts us down. It causes us to live in fear. It puts us in a box. It doesn't run the race. It doesn't have the joy. Shame will destroy joy in your life. And so maybe we're reluctant to believe God. Maybe we're reluctant to move out in faith. Maybe we're reluctant to lift our soul to the Lord. Maybe we're reluctant to, to, to preach, to speak, to lead, to help people, to evangelize, whatever it might be. We're reluctant because of shame. But when there's the joy set before us, then we run that race because there's a greater victory than the fear of possible defeat. There, the the, the definition of, of, uh, of, of shame we just talked about is this embarrassment or humiliation. It's, it's, it's an unusual word for, for, to be used about Jesus here. Uh, when, when it speaks about the, the, the cross, he endured the cross and he despised the shame. What a, isn't that a strange word? He despised the shame. Did that ever... Did that ever cause you to pause and wonder what, what that means to, to despise? What, how do we define that, that he despised the shame? It, 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 maybe he could have said he confronted it, the shame that he was, or he dealt with the shame that he was dealing with in his heart, or, or he even contended with the, the fact that there was shame taking place, uh, coming against him. The enemy was trying to shame him, and he, he was contending against it. Or maybe, maybe even stronger, you could say he defeated or overran or overturned the shame that was attacking him in his life, these attacking him on multitudes of fronts. Uh, but, but the word that Jesus is described of him is he despised it. He despised the shame. How many of us in our own life, when we're dealing with the shame, that we, we actually come to this point of despising it? we despising it. Uh, uh, the de- definition of despise is to look down upon with disrespect or aversion, to regard as negligible or even worthless. So what Jesus was doing was saying, this shame is worthless. It's, it's, it's nothing in compared to the glory that I'm going to have at the triumphant victory of what I'm going to do on the finished work of Jesus on the cross. That, uh, I, I regard it as ne- negligible, the, 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 the shame. And Jesus was faced with all kinds. The attacks uh, of shame were on multiple fronts from Jesus. His friends left him. His disciples left him. His family abandoned him. Soldiers mocked him. Government stood against him. The whole nation, so to speak, was against him. False accusations were flung at him. The crowd began to ridicule and scorn him, falsely accusing him multiple times. Uh, uh, on the death uh, on this time on the cross oh the death was uh, the cross was painful physically but but this this spewing of satanic shame towards him was trying to get him to be defeated to look down to look at his problems to look at uh, to stop looking at the joy because if he could get his eyes off the joy then maybe he could get his eyes off the race that he was meant to run but Jesus addresses the troubles that are enlarged. He addresses the shameful attempts to defeat his soul. And because of joy, there was a joy that was going to win the day. There was something bigger. There was something better. There was something more glorious. There was a victory to be obtained that made the scornful shame seem ridiculously, ins- ridiculously insignificant. Let me say that one more time. The joy was winning. The joy was the victory he was obtaining. And that would make the scornful shame seem ridiculously insignificant. It would be foolish to think of 
these shameful accusations when I can set my mind on this glorious scheme of the Father to redeem mankind, to redeem Israel, to bring children's hearts back to the Father. Matthew 6, 4. Uh, let me just turn there real quick. I know I told you I'd be done, but uh, I just I really want you to see this uh, because, and this will put a good capstone on what we're saying. Matthew 6, 24. Turn to Matthew 6, 24. Now, now no one can serve two masters for either, he either will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So, so here, the deepest shame comes from misplaced devotion. When, when you are devoted to the wrong thing, when you're devoted to, to getting the applause of men, when you're devoted here, as I think about materialism, you're, you're misplacing your devotion and, 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 and you can find shame in that. But despising the shame requires an untethering from misplaced devotion. It, it, placing your devotion on, on success or fame or riches or glory or the applause of man, setting your, tethering yourself to those things, when you don't get them, your heart's going to be so full of shame, you're going to be defeated, overwhelmed, hopeless, without joy. But if you tether yourself, devote yourself to the joy set before you, to the, to, you can endure anything and you can find the outcome is a victory. Uh, you'll despise the, the things of this world. They, they, they will be little to you, insignificant to you, worthless to you. If, if, if people shame you, you'll scorn at their shame because you have a greater joy set before you. If they speak evil against you, it doesn't break your heart. It doesn't cause you to feel belittled because you know the bigger picture of who you are in Christ Jesus. And this is the overcoming of shame. This is the power over shame where Jesus on the cross has nailed these things, these accusations of who you are and the failures you think you might be and the accusations and lies against you. Jesus nailed them all to the cross and said, you are free. You're free to walk in that. Enter into the joy now and be devoted to these things, to the higher things. Be devoted to looking unto Jesus and not looking down to your problems. And when you do, shame will flee. It will run. It will be insignificant and worthless, almost as if it's non-existent to you. It'll give you weapons of warfare against these things of shame. Let me pray for you. And we believe that truth breaks the power of darkness. And this truth has come forth to your heart today. And now through prayer, it's going to break and I want you to agree with me in prayer. Jesus, we agree right now together that you would break the power of shame in our life. Words spoken against us, feelings we have about ourselves, emotions, desires, ambitions, things we have that we feel we're failing. We might even feel disgusted in ourselves. We, we might call ourselves names. But Lord, I thank you that you had a greater purpose. And, and not only are you the resurrected son seated at the right hand, you are bringing sons to glory. You're bringing us to the place where we're walking now in your glory. We are devoted to those higher things, devoted to the high calling, to that joy that's set before us. We're, 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 we're leaning into that. So Jesus, I pray for those listening to me today that there would be today a spiritual breakthrough, a, a truth from the word of God that be like a sharp sword that cuts out the things of our heart and our mind and our life and our behaviors and our emotions, cuts them out and frees us to walk now only in the joy, the joy of knowing that you set our feet on the rock, that you've given us your paths and your ways and your truth and your life and your overcoming victory in this. We give thanks for this in Jesus' precious name. Let it be done. So let it be done in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for joining us again today. Join us in our next episode when we move into Psalm chapter 26. It's going to be a good one.